This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. John chapter 13, verses 18. That's where we'll start and we'll go to 30. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after these sayings, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at um, a table at Jesus' side. Thank you, JR. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus then said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling them about what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. All right, I tell you what, um, I'm going to have you all sit down. But if there's anybody, if you have any seats in the middle, um, I need you to scoot down. I forgot to say that at the beginning because I know there's some, still some people are kind of sitting out in the lobby that might be able to make, make their way in here. John 13, 18 through 30, the story of Judas. All right, so I want to I walk you through a timeline. I want to walk you through a timeline. This man walked with Jesus. Heard every sermon he preached, saw every miracle that he performed. Had his feet washed on the night he rejected. At the end of his life, turned his back on the one he claimed to love. And the disciple that I just told you about is not Judas, it's Peter. It's also Judas, but it's also Peter. And as I was studying the life of Judas and I was studying the betrayal of Judas, I realized there's this, there's this thing that I kind of have to confront in my mind. And it's the fact that, like, I have really, really elevated the betrayal of Judas. And rightly so. I mean, he traded, he, he traded in everything that he had access to with the grace and glory of God for 30 pieces of silver. There's something sadistic about that. But when I read the definition of betrayal, I want you to hear this. All right. It says, betrayal is disloyalty. Treachery, bad faith, faithlessness, falselessness, duplicity, deception, double dealing, breach of faith, breach of trust, stab in the back, double cross, sellout. And one thing that's important for us to realize is we look at the life of Judas, we look at the betrayal of Judas, we look at the lessons there are for us to learn in our own hearts and the difficult look that we all need to take in the mirror. Guys, do you realize every one of the men at that table was going to, in some form or another, turn their backs on him this night, except for one. Like, we know Peter's life. Right after this, there's going to be a moment where he says, hey, tonight you're going to deny me three times. 
And Peter's like, whatever, I'm going to die with you. And then it goes on. The story gets a little bit crazy. And I, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the story tonight in the timeline, or this morning, but uh, in the timeline. But it, it's okay because after chapter 13, we get into teaching that's 14, 15, 16, and 17. And that's going to take us like a year and a half probably at the pace we go. So you, you, you'll forget the story by the time we get there. All right, so what happens after this is Peter is told, you're going to deny me. And then right after this, then they go to pray at a garden. And when they pray at a garden, then suddenly Judas comes back and he has this cohort with him. He comes back and he's got some soldiers and he's got this group of people that are coming to arrest Jesus, betrays him with a kiss. And one thing I'd never noticed, it, I don't know how I missed this growing up, but like, and I'll, almost everybody I've talked to about it this week is like, really, that's in there? But when it tells the story of what happens when, when this group of soldiers come to get Jesus and Judas betrays him, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. And every one of the soldiers with, with clubs and swords in their hands falls on their back. And then they get up and you might know what happens next. That Peter grabs a sword and he chops off a dude named Malchus's ear, servant of the high priest. Now, let me, let me go ahead and let you know something. Peter was not so good with a sword that he was aiming for an ear. Okay? What Peter was trying to do was to get the neck, and he missed, which is a great grace because when he misses and chops off this dude's ear, there's a group of soldiers there all with weapons that would have in a split second slit him through. And instead, Jesus quickly grabs the ear, puts it back on, and they're so thrown off by the miraculous that he gets to live. He's gotten his feet washed. He's gotten his life saved. He's made claims that he's never going to turn his back on his Lord. And then later on that night, he denies him three different times. And I tell you the story of Peter, not to try to like condone anything in the act of Judas, obviously. But I paint that picture because I need you all to know that all of us are betrayers. Every one of us here. Every one of us in some way, some form or fashion, has traded in the glory of God for a lesser glory. And what I want us to understand, do you know, do you know what sin is? Sin, we've talked about this before. Sin, sin is a word, you know, it's kind of a Bible word that, uh, that a lot of people think, oh, it just means something you do wrong. But it's, it's a little bit more precise than that. Sin is an archery term. And in archery, they would have, they had this idea that like, if there's a target in the back, and don't worry, I don't have a bow and arrow, I'm not, I'm not going for the back here, but like, if there was a target in the back, and you've got like the big target, and you got a ring, and a smaller ring, a smaller ring, and finally you've got the bullseye. Well, let's say that I shoot from back here, and I hit the, the ring that's right next to the bullseye, and I'm like, man, that is the best shot of my life, and it would be if I could do that with a bow and arrow. And if I were to get that close, I would be like, man, that was an awesome shot. And you know what that is in archery terms? That's sin. It's to miss the mark is what the expression is. To miss the mark. It's to miss the bullseye. What's the bullseye? Romans 3.23 kind of gives us indication. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when people talk about sin, a lot of times they mean, oh, I don't know if it's sin. I just did something a little bit wrong. It's like, no, no, no. Sin is any time in any moment of your life that you are not completely reproducing and reenacting God's glory and putting it on display in the earth. 
That makes sin a little bit broader, doesn't it? And guys, I need you to know that anytime, anytime we sin, anytime I choose something other than deciding that God's glory should be elevated above my own glory, that God's decisions should be, should be elevated above my decisions, what I'm doing, from the perspective of heaven, I just don't think there would be nearly the difference in the mind of heaven there would be in the mind of Kurt between Judas receiving 30 pieces of silver to betray our Lord and what I think are my just closet sins in the back of my mind. That every time you choose a lesser, you're taking 30 pieces of silver. And this is really, really important. Now, this would be, this can be sad and depressing news. I recognize that. But guys, you got to understand, like, the more weight and gravity we put on sin, the more I'm willing to admit that everything in my heart is contrary to everything in his heart until faith comes in and does a supernatural work in me that is just, just as unbelievable in my flesh is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because like that's what's happened to me. That's what I'm claiming. Because the resurrection and the work of grace and the act of redemption in my heart is only as powerful as what I think I've been saved from. And guys, if you minimize what you're saved from, if you're a person who thinks you were a decent human being and God merely wanted to come into your life to improve you, you've not yet heard the gospel. And I want to get to have the opportunity and the privilege to let you know, let you know what the truth of the gospel is. But on the front end, it's going to sound real depressing. And it's that you are not a decent human being who needs improvement. And it's not that you're somebody who's lovely and precious, who has a couple things that are a little bit flawed that you need to improve. The truth of the gospel starts with this. You're Judas. And so am I. And guys, I've, I've betrayed him, broken his heart, torn it apart. And yet, on the other side of the story, there are two options. And the thing that makes Judas so heinous and so wretched in all of human history is not that he took 30 pieces of silver. It's the way he responded to his shame. Peter, in essence, took 30 pieces of silver too. But he responded in repentance. All right, let's move on. Who was Judas? Who was Judas? I want to kind of give you a little bit of a, a description of who he was, the character study of Judas. And we are, we're told some things about him early on, that he gets to keep the money bag. We'll see that even at the end of this passage. He's the one who's the treasurer. He kind of has control of the money. And it's interesting because among the other disciples, he has a reputation for being the one who gives to the poor. We even saw this in John 12, you know, when, or, uh, yeah, when, when Mary washes the feet of Jesus with, with the expensive ointment that would have been worth 300 denarii. In other words, a year's wages. So like the equivalent of like 20,000 something dollars worth of perfume. And Judah says, why'd she do that? We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. Doesn't that sound so spiritual? Ooh, man, I tell you what. He is, guys, he's the ultimate Pharisee who says the right thing with the wrong heart. And one thing, the Lord's convicted me of this, that you know, I grew up a pastor's kid. Um, my mom and dad had wild story. They were 
you know, both addicts and had this insane past, but then the Lord redeemed them. By the time I was born, I was born into a very different home, and I inherited redemption. You know, and when I got to, when I grew up, I didn't just grow up and like, oh, we should go to church on Sundays. I grew up in this reality that God wanted to be part of your every day. And that if you didn't let him be part, then you were actually missing out on what that day could have healed. And I got to hear the story of what God had saved them from and what he had saved them into. And when I heard that story, it gave me this craving. I was like, man, I, I just, I saw his reality on display every day. I saw my mom would like, when she lost things, she'd be like, Lord, will you tell me where it is? You know, just pray out loud. And he'd tell her, like almost every, I mean, in weird ways. I remember we like, we're going on a trip one time and she, we like, somebody lost a passport and she's like, looked everywhere, checked everywhere. And she's like, Lord, I don't know where it is. And she said, she heard the Lord go, it's behind the drawer in the pretty piece of furniture. Now, first of all, like she's the only person that would call a piece of furniture, literally the pretty piece of furniture. And she pulls this drawer out that's probably been in there for 50 years. And sure enough, this thing had fallen out behind the drawer in the pretty piece of furniture. And I remember us walking into a Home Depot one time, and our grill had just broken. And we, were, we grew up without a whole lot of, you know, creature comforts and things. And so we were, like, walking through Home Depot, and there's this grill giveaway that you could sign up for and get your name drawn. And my mom walks by, and she said, she heard the Lord go, you're going to win the grill. And so she, like, goes back, signs up. The drawing's going to be on a day when we're going to be out of town. It's before cell phones, so, like, we wouldn't be by our landline. She takes it to the counter. It's like, hey, I just need to let you know. Um, the Lord told me I'm going to win the grill. <laughs> but when I do, you're going to call, and you, I'm not going to be there to answer the phone. <laughs> you know, you can imagine the average Home Depot employee. No offense if there's any Home Depot employees in here, but just some young girl is just like, what? You know? <laughs> and, like, makes her specify on the paper Woman won't be home when we call. Thanks, God said she'll win. You know, like all this. <laughs> sure enough, you know what happened? We won the grill. <laughs> yeah, we did. You know, so I got to see this. I got to see the reality God put on display in my life. And it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then I got, you know, when I was five years old, I'd, I'd had this desire to know God for myself. I started asking mom and dad when I was three years old, you know, which sounds really cute. Like, oh, a three-year-old, but I was like the size of most of you at three because <laughs> that was flipping huge. All right. And so, but at three, I'm like, mom and dad, I want to know Jesus. And like any good parent, they're like, nah. And so then I ask again at four, nah. Finally at five, I literally, this is, I don't remember this part, but this is what they said, that I walked in, I walked in to talk to my dad, and I literally said, Dad, I'm going to go ask Jesus into my heart whether you help me or not. This is your last chance. <laughs> Walk into the living room, we get on our knees, and we pray. And I mean, it was simple, but like I had an awareness. I had an awareness of the fact that like not only did I mistreat my sister, who was the one who went to the back to teach the kids, but I enjoyed it, you know? Like, I loved it. I, I enjoyed disobedience. I had these things in my heart that I knew were contrary to what, not just to who God was and not who what my parents had told me, but they were contrary to what I wanted because eternity was written on my heart. And so at the age of five, got on my knees, repented of my sins. And my dad went in to tell my mom about what I'd done, and they came back, and I was gone. And apparently I'd gone out to the cul-de-sac and shared with every house in my neighborhood what I'd done and said, hey, you should do this too. And there was a genuineness, even though I was five years old, something that I knew I couldn't wake up in myself. And so I, I saw the Lord do a work in me. And then I grew up in church culture, which was great in so many ways. Memorized lots of scripture. Fell in love with the word of God. 
Love getting to minister and to teach and to lead, all those things. But you know what else I learned? I learned how to fake it. I learned how to give you the right answer every time, whether my heart was right or not. When my heart was right, I'd give you the right answer and I'd mean it. When my heart was wrong, I'd still give you the right answer and, you'd, and I'd fake it. Because I probably knew more Bible verses than you. And guys, I found out the Lord like taught me this lesson. I've had to learn in a really difficult and painful way. Is that like I have this really, really sick tendency that all of my idols in my life all have Jesus wrapping paper on them. Because Judas, Judas had, had Jesus wrapping paper on everything he did. So much so. So much so that at the end of this story, do you see what happens here? He's, he is mapped it out as clear as can be to the group. One of you is going to betray me. Everybody asking who it is. One thing that's hilarious in one of the other Gospels, I can't remember which one I was studying the four um, stories of this this week, but in one of them, the immediate next conversation is who is the greatest in the kingdom, which is hilarious that they would hear one of you is going to betray me, and they immediately start arguing about which one's the greatest, which is just hilarious. I feel like that's also me, but uh, not the greatest that I would have that tendency because I'm a Pharisee. Anyway, all right, so you see at the end of the story, what happens? They say whoever did the morsel of bread and give it to you. That's the one who's going to betray me. So he dips the morsel of bread. He hands it to Judas. And then immediately he says, go and do what you must. Judas leaves. It feels like you could not have, you could not have made this any more clear. And what do they say? But he's going to give something to the poor. <laughs> what? No, he, he lit, I mean, he literally just told you, I'm going to dip the bread going to hand the piece of bread to the person that's going to turn their back on me. Look, Judas took the bread. All right. Okay. Yeah, he's going to go give it to the poor. No. No, guys. And they miss it. They miss it. He has faked it so well that even when Jesus tries to map out, this is the man who is going to ultimately destroy everything. They miss it. Because this Jesus wrapping paper was so thick. And guys, what you've got here, you, not only do you have the ultimate Pharisee, a lover of money and a hypocrite, but you actually have prophecy being fulfilled. I'm going to read you a verse. This is in Psalm chapter 41. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. I think it's really, really unique, really unique about when you read this story and everything that's going to come after. And it's important for us to know this because Jesus is living out a script. Now, I don't mean it's like, I'm not saying God was like, okay, today your role is this, this. No, no, no. It's a script that he wrote. Before the foundations of the world, that verse that verse there in Psalms was 700 years before Jesus shows up on earth. 700 years before it happened, they map it out. This happens over 300 times in the life of Jesus, where something that happened in the Old Testament comes true in his life. It's because he wrote the script. He wrote it how this was going to happen. Now, 
A lot of people would say, oh, well, if it was just kind of part of the plan, then Judas can't be held responsible. That's not how it works. This is not Judas, some innocent victim of the plan and purpose. It's like, no, no, no. Now, Judas walked right into this, became a man who would naturally fit the role of betrayer, and then let his shame put him to death. So how does Jesus respond? In verse 1 of, of John 13, there's this really sweet moment where it says, talks about Jesus and how he's going to finish. And it says at the end, he loved them to the end about his disciples. Realizing you're going to have one that sells you out for 30 pieces of silver. Another that's been one of your closest companions is going to deny you three times. All the rest are going to run off and not even represent you at your death except for one, which is John the Beloved. And how does he respond? In verse 3, verse 3 it says that God has put all things into his hand. He came from the Father. He's getting ready to go back. And what he wants us to know is this. He is completely sovereign. There's this moment when Jesus is on the cross and the Pharisees at the, or the religious leaders sitting at the foot of the cross, you know, they say, what? Oh, if you're the son of God, just climb down. You realize he could have. But what they thought the son of God would do was the exact opposite of what the son of God knew he had to do. Because he was the son of God, he didn't climb off the cross, even though he could have. You realize every cell, every cell in the nails that were sitting inside of his wrist was submitted to him. You realize that? Every particle that made up the cross owed its complete and utter allegiance to him. Do you realize that? Like the sweat drops of blood that came out of his body as he prayed in Gethsemane. They called him worthy. Everything, all things hold together in him. That's what Colossians 1 will tell us later on. Because he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. There's in no way ever a moment that he is not sovereign. And here he is, Jesus, the sovereign God of the universe, come down to take on human form, doing the one thing that humanity could never imagine people would do, not just to die, but to die for sins he didn't commit. And you know what he's going to do? Not only is he going to die on the cross for men like Judas and men like me, because the next step, the logical conclusion that he comes to after saying, I have all authority, all things are in my hand, then he drops down on his knees, uses those hands, and washes his betrayer's feet. sweet thing for us to remember is that when Judas was running to the chief priest to turn him in, he was doing it with really, really pretty feet because Jesus had just gotten down and loved him to the end. 
was talking to my buddy Zach Meerkrebs. He's actually going to be here preaching. I don't know if it'll be next week or sometime here soon. He's a really close friend of ours who uh, pastors at New City Church. Some amazing friends just downtown. I love Zach. And Zach just finished a book. And uh, we were sitting down and talking about it the other day um, because this is the passage of Scripture that kind of ended up being the, the inspiration for him to begin writing. And it's a book about dignity and how God is the dignifier. I'm the dignifier of all those who don't deserve dignity and wouldn't see dignity in themselves. And he, he said that what, what struck him was, first of all, the reality that Jesus washed the feet of Judas right before he went to betray him. But then second, what happens when the disciples all make the assumption that he's about to go good, do a good deed when he's going to turn in the Son of God? He just lets them. And the way that Jesus dignifies a man who's in the middle of the most indignant moment in all of human history. As what does that say about who it is we're serving? He's the author of dignity. One thing that really kind of struck me, it says that uh, in verse 19, and as we talk about this kind of being a script that he has mapped out for the foundation of the world, in verse 19, there's a statement at the very end. Right there in John 13. Let me open up to it again so I can read it back to you one more time. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. It's my version of the ESV. That's what I'm reading from. And the ESV adds that extra word there at the end, that he. And uh, even at the bottom, again, gives you a little, a little postscript there. And it says, he was added later by the translators. Because what he says is, I told you this so that when it's all said and done, and when you look back, you'll remember, I am. Exact same words that he's going to use later on whenever one of the soldiers falls down on their back with their sword still in their hand. Because the important, the important thing for us to remember and for us to learn, it's pretty simple. Um, you're all Judas. <laughs> now, I know that is not like the feel-good response, like, everyone rush the altar now. You're all a bunch of betrayers, hypocrites. You know, it's like, ah, thanks, Kurt, awesome. Remind me not to hang out with you later on. You know, but like, because this, this is one of the most important truths in the gospel. When you and I look in the mirror, every time we see somebody, we see somebody that would quickly and has a hundred thousand times over traded in the glory of God for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter did too. So, what's the difference? Where's the grand conclusion then? One of my, Justin Luttrell was talking about a, one time as he was sharing the gospel with, or maybe it was one of your friends who was sharing the gospel um, with an international student, he was telling them, this is the good news. We call this the good news, the gospel. And they just said, what's the bad news? <laughs> and he goes, this is the bad news. The bad news is you're Judas. The bad news is that you and I are inherently sinful, that everything in us is opposed to everything that he is. At every moment of your life, you on your own, by your own inclinations, are going to choose 30 pieces of silver of the glory of God. The good news. The good news is really, really important to get to. Because what happens is, is when we recognize that, and Judas recognized that, he recognized, man, I am wretched, what I've done, 
is terrible, heinous, and deserving of death. And he was so convinced of that truth that he killed himself. The difference between Judas and Peter is their response. And guys, the response of Peter is far, far different than the response of Judas. Because after he turns his back on his Lord, later on he gets to see him in his resurrected state. And there's this moment. It's beautiful. They go back to the, they're on the Sea of Tiberias. All right? It's later on in the book of John. And they're on a boat. And they went out fishing. They fished all night. Didn't catch anything. Suddenly somebody yells. They're like 100 yards from shore. And some dude on the shore just yells out like, did you catch anything? They're like, nah, nothing. He says, try the other side of the boat. Throw out the net. Can barely take in all the fish. John the Beloved, the writer, just says in the boat, it's the Lord. That's it. You never see Peter say anything. He doesn't respond verbally at all. All you see is that Peter, who had on his fishing outfit, grabs his outer garment, wraps it up as quickly as he can, and leaps out of the boat. Like, the boat's going to be at the shore in less than two minutes. All right? This isn't, like, there wasn't, it, they could have gotten there pretty quickly. All the other disciples were quite content to wait until the boat did the work for them, but not Peter. Peter knows who he is. He stared in that mirror ever since that night he betrayed, and he recognized, I'm heinous. I might as well have turned in my Lord for 30 pieces of silver. What I've done should not be forgivable. And then, and then he looks out the side of his boat, and he sees Jesus. And there's no way, no way he's going to wait for that boat to do the work for him. He leaps out the side. He swims Swims to Jesus. Jesus makes him fish. And he asks him three questions. Do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. Shame kills Judas. And Peter, instead of letting his shame be the death of him, man, he lets the one who died to take his shame away, do his perfect work. And so the conclusion is pretty simple, and I think it's probably obvious at this point, because we're all the betrayer. But you and I, now we get to decide which one are we going to betray like? Am I going to betray like Judas and let shame be the death of me? Am I going to just live so deeply in, in the lies that the enemy tells me? If I'm, am I going to let my anchor be set in who I've been in the past, the things that I've done that make me feel like I'm unworthy of his love? Because ultimately what that is, and this, is, this kind of gets right into the weight of condemnation, and this is, goodness, unfortunately what I've managed to live in for a, for a majority of my adult life. Guys, this, this weight of condemnation, this you're not good enough, you don't deserve his grace, you'll just exploit it, all the lies that the enemy tells you. Guys, all those lies. You know what they're really, what they're really saying? When you believe a lie of shame or condemnation or that you're not good enough, what you're actually saying, what heaven hears is not, I'm not good enough. It's the cross wasn't sufficient. Your cross, that was a great try, Jesus. Thanks for attempting to lavish grace on the world, but it wasn't enough for me. And that's not just a lie, that's heresy. 
And guys, what we have to do is we have to stare ourselves in the mirror and admit, what's the bad news? Bad news, I'm Judas. What's the good news? The good news is I might not have a boat that I can jump out of and I don't have a sea of Tiberias here that I can swim through. But if I ask Jesus today, Jesus, what does it look like for me to respond to redemption? What does it look like for me to be a man who is unconvinced of the lies of the enemy and who lets truth saturate my mind? Just like Isaiah 26.3 says, he has kept it perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. But if you ask the Lord, God, make me a person that believes truth. Let it take root deep in me and wake up a faith in me that I could not wake up in myself. He's never said no to that in all of human history. 